Matthew 17 is where we're going to be. And as we make our way towards Matthew chapter 17, uh, let me just remind you that the uh, theme of the book of Matthew, Matthew's gospel, he writes specifically to a Jewish audience, and the main overarching idea is that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah. His name, actually, Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua. It means Jehovah is salvation, and that he would be their Messiah, their anointed one. And so uh, Matthew paints this picture for us throughout his gospel of Jesus as the Messiah. Now, you can break the book of Matthew into different sub-themes. In chapters 1 through 10, what we looked at was the king was being revealed. This long-awaited king was actually being revealed to uh, the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people. And so we see Matthew painting that picture. And then, uh, interestingly enough, um, in chapters 11 through 13, we see a transition. Because while... uh, Many would think that this message of salvation, this good news, this opportunity that we have to be saved would be greeted with open arms, uh, was in fact resisted. And so we see this resistance that comes against Jesus because his message, uh, by and large, went against their tradition with what they thought it was going to look like, their rules and regulations. It ultimately affected the power that they wanted to hold over the people, at least for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so they resisted the king. Chapters 14 through 20, then, we see the king now retreating. He's uh, taken this resistance, and now he's gone to the lands to the north, the area of Lebanon, to the lands to the west, to the area of uh, Jordan. And he's taken this message now to the Gentile people because he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And so he's taken this message uh, now to others as the king is retreating. And that's where we're going to find ourselves here in chapter 17 this morning. So in chapter 16, you might recall last week that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came to Jesus and they said to him, would you show us a sign from heaven? Now this is kind of amazing because if you've spent the last several weeks with us, what have you seen but signs, amazing signs, miraculous signs, and yet they come to Jesus and they ask for yet another sign. And the point of that uh, last week that we talked about is is this, that signs never save. The only thing a sign does is it actually leaves you looking for the next sign. A miracle, what it's really intended to do, a sign, is to point you back to Scripture. Signs actually prove what Scripture says. And so that's the, the proof text to go back to the Word of God. That's the thing that never changes. This is the thing that saves. And so... We see Jesus saying, look, if you want a sign, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. And that sign literally meant that he was going to be uh, crucified, buried, and then on the third day resurrected. No more important sign is there than this. In fact, this is the sign that can save. Because the, the death and the burial of Jesus was not enough to get you and I to heaven. That if it was not for the resurrection, there was no proof that the payment, that's what Jesus was essentially doing. He was the Lamb of God to make atonement for our sins. There was no proof that the payment was accepted except for the resurrection. And so the resurrection becomes that very proof that the payment was accepted. This is a sign that saves. That's precisely what Jesus said. If you want a sign, I'm going to give you a sign, and here it is. And so where we begin this morning is actually in verse 28 of chapter 16, Uh, Unfortunately, the chapter breaks in this spot weren't in the best place. Uh, Lest you think that 
The Bible always had chapters and verses. Those didn't come around to about 1500 AD. So the chapter breaks are normally really good. In this case, uh, not so great. So verse 28, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so Jesus speaking, he's speaking specifically to his disciples. He's taken them off to himself, and he says that there are going to be some of his disciples who are there, gathered around, that will not see death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This Son of Man is a messianic title. So again, it's pointing back to Jesus as the Messiah from Daniel's prophecies. And he's saying, These, there will be some here that will see me glorified. Now, many would read that text and go, well, you see, the Bible's got fallacies. Because clearly all the disciples are dead. I mean, here it's 2,000 years later. These men didn't see Jesus glorified. He hasn't come back yet. So this is why you cannot trust the Bible. But for those people, those doubters, they should probably go on and read chapter 17, the very next verse. So pick up with me, if you would, in verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And so Jesus is now taking away from the twelve these three, Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples. He takes them away to a mount. We don't know the exact mount, but many believe it's Mount Hermon there in the northern part of Israel. And he takes them apart. He literally sets them apart. Which leads me to this comment, I like this quote, that um, if we don't come apart, we will fall apart. So for us as Christians, we are called to actually be set apart. Not to be in line with what the world thinks or how the world tells us we need to operate. We are to operate uh, differently. Within the context of the world, but we are to be a set-apart people. Uh, God actually looks at us as kings and priests, if you can believe that or not. That's what we're called to be to the world around us. And so if we don't come apart, we'll fall apart. What that also means to me is uh, we are to actually come apart and spend time with him. So for many of you, you serve, you do things, you've got kids and they're involved. And, and, and all these different directions we get pulled. But the reality of it is if we don't find time to set aside to actually spend it um, with Jesus, then we will fall apart. <laughs> We, we will feel like we're actually being torn apart from the inside. It's exhausting, in fact. And so the encouragement here is to find time to actually spend set apart with the King of Kings. Now, the second thing to notice is Jesus sets apart these three specifically, Peter, James, and John. And he does so, uh, interestingly enough, on three different occasions in the New Testament. And each of these three occasions in the New Testament deal with one topic. And that topic is death. All three times uh, it is to deal with death. In Matthew chapter 9, we looked at this a couple months ago, we see that uh, Jesus is approached there by a leader in the Jewish community, a, a ruler of the synagogue, he's called, a guy named Jairus. And Jairus has got a big problem uh, because his uh, 12-year-old daughter was sick. In fact, uh, she was so sick, she actually ends up dying. And so, being a Jewish leader, he knows about this miraculous miracle man, this healer, this rabbi. And so, he finds Jesus, and he approaches him, and he begs him to please come and heal his daughter. Jairus believed in resurrection. 
And so what Jesus does is he follows Jairus to the house. And when he gets there, of course, there's family, there's, there's friends, they're all there. And they're crying and they're moaning. Why? Because this little girl is dead. But as Jesus enters the house, he tells the people, look, don't cry, don't weep, because the girl isn't dead, she's only asleep. Now, upon hearing this, they should have been excited, but the reaction, you might remember, was um, they actually mocked him. <laughs> they made fun of Jesus. They did not believe, which, a little side note, um, it it's, goes like this. Uh, the mocker never sees the miraculous. The reality is, for the cynic and for the person who does not believe, that will not believe, that cannot believe, they never get to see the miraculous take place. That's maybe more heartbreaking than even the death of this little girl. And so Jesus removes the mockers. He kicks them out of the house. The mockers have to be removed for the miracle to take place. He gets them out, and then he goes in, raises this little girl from the dead. And what we find is that in this, these three men, Peter, James, and John, they get to see Jesus has victory over death. You see, this is something that uh, no person can escape. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist, an agnostic. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a Catholic, a Jew, a Protestant. If you just are somebody trying to figure it out, the reality is um, death, it happens to everyone. It's 100% certain that we are all going to die. And for almost uh, everyone, that is something that is terrifying. But what Jesus allows is he pulls the curtain back for these three men to see is, um, here is a man who has victory in death. And so uh, if you're in here today and that's something that terrifies you, I want to encourage you because what Jesus is trying to communicate is something that will set you free. Because no longer are we as Christians to be uh, fearful of this. We're not to be terrified of this because in this, um, this doesn't look like death for the Christian. This looks like a job promotion. <laughs> So, so when you read in the obituary that, that I have passed away and you open that paper up, if you even still have papers at that time, you probably just see it on the book of face. When you see it on the book of face that I am no longer with us, I want you to, to not uh, lament, but in fact go, whoa, Brock got a job promotion. Man, that's awesome. Jesus has victory in this spot. The second occasion where these three are called apart is in Luke chapter 22. This is where Jesus invites them to go with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he tells Peter, James, and John, come with me and pray with me there in the garden. And so they go there. This is just hours before Jesus would be arrested, beaten, and then crucified. They go with him to this garden right outside of the walls of Jerusalem. They're in the Mount of Olives, this beautiful area with olive trees. To this day, you can go and visit it and, and pray there. And Jesus goes into the garden, and he begins to pray. And, and Peter, James, and John, well, well they do what happens at, at our house, usually when I get into a long-winded uh, prayer they fell asleep. <laughs> yeah, so that's normally how it works. For us as a family, uh, every Sunday night, uh, we pray for Woodlawn Chapel specifically. We, we gather around either at the table or on the couch, and we pr we've done this since long before any of y'all were here, since even before we had a building. We've gathered to just pray for Woodlawn Chapel. Uh, but the thing is, between my wife and I, we argue over who gets to pray first and who's going to have to close because we know the other one is not going to be awake by the time we get done listening to everybody pray. So that apparently is the same issue that Peter, James, and John have as Jesus is there praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
But as they awake, what they hear Jesus praying is, as he cries out and he says, if there's any way, any way at all for this cup to pass, any way I don't have to go through these next several hours, but nevertheless, not what I will, but thy will be done. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. And so in this, for Peter, James, and John, they get to see Jesus humbling himself to death. What Paul would write to the church in Philippi, a church that, that by the way, when we read this, um, they've got all kinds of persecution coming against them. This is not a church that's the most popular place. This is not a, a super wealthy place like the Corinthians. They are dealing with outside persecution. They are being humbled. It's seemingly on all sides. What Paul writes to them is that being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. That if you're being humbled in your life, here's the good news, uh, you're being made more like Jesus. If you feel like the world is coming down upon you and you're being persecuted, here's what Paul's saying. Look, uh, he can say, I can relate. Right? So that's what ultimately these men get to see. They get to see Jesus being humbled or allowing himself. He actually willingly allows himself to be humbled unto death. And then thirdly, the third occasion we see these three is the text that we're going to look at today. And yes, we will look at the text today, so have no fear. We'll get past verse 1. But here are these three gathered at the Mount of Transfiguration, and what they get a witness is Jesus being glorified in his death. Jesus is going to be glorified. And so what I want to share with you for, uh, for all this that we just went through with these three, it's that I believe he set them apart to specifically talk to them about this topic of death because he knew they were going to need it. <laughs> you see, for all three of these men, uh, they, they died in very different fashions. Leaders of the church, yes, but for Peter in John 21, uh, Jesus told him, you're going to be carried away, and you're going to be carried away, and your hands are going to be taken from you. You're going to go to a place you don't want to go, and they're going to they're gonna spread your hands apart. In other words, you're going to be crucified. And what we find is that around 67 AD, the apostle Peter is actually crucified, but not wanting to be crucified like Christ, he actually asked for them to crucify him upside down. And so we see uh, Peter dies this rather gruesome death. And then for James, the brother of John, he in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, is actually the first of the apostles to be martyred. Uh, King Herod Agrippa set uh, James apart for sharing the gospel message and had him beheaded. And so, you know, a, a demise for this man as well. And then there's John, John the Apostle. Uh, this one, as Peter's being explained to in John 21 about uh, how he is going to die, uh, Pete, you got to love when Peter throws questions out there. He says, yeah, but what about the rest of these guys? I mean, you're telling me about my death. And, and Jesus responds, that, look, uh, what does that matter to you? If I want uh, this man's pointing directly to John to be around until I return, what difference does that mean to you? You just need to follow me, Peter. You just need to follow me. And so what we find is that John the Apostle is the only one of the apostles that was not martyred. He actually died of old age. Now, that wasn't uh, for a lack of trying. Uh, Caesar Nero uh, captures John the Apostle and actually has him uh, put alive into a vat of hot oil to actually boil him alive. And so uh, what we find is John doesn't die, which is precisely why he is the church's first friar. 
Uh, it's, a, it's a church joke. It's okay. That's, that's as good as it's going to get probably this morning. So, needless, it's okay. Needless to say, um, Caesar is rather uh, upset by this. And so what he does is he ends up banishing John to the island of Patmos, where John receives a vision and why we have our last book in our New Testament, the Revelation, not Revelations, it's one revelation specifically of Jesus Christ. That's the vision John gets after suffering through this. And so suffering many things and yet continued, uh, by, sustained by Jesus and what I wanted to share all that with you, uh, you, I'm sure you're wondering at this point, why in the world are you sharing all this? This is the point. For these three men, he knew that they were going to have to have very different experiences surrounding death. And yet he went out of his way to prepare them for those experiences. He wanted them to understand that he was going to be victorious in death. That even he himself was going to be humbled unto death. And yet, here's the promise. Here's the bright side they too, like him, were going to be glorified in death. And so I share that to say, uh, when you're coming up against things in your life, when it, when it seems like things are getting difficult, pay attention to the signs, because what the Father wants to do is actually give you a heads up. He actually wants to prepare you in your life for what's getting ready to happen. It might look like a podcast. It might look like daily Bible reading. It might even look like a pastor who tells really awful jokes about someone being boiled in oil. It might be all sorts of things, but the reality is he wants to prepare you for the next season. We just have to have eyes to see it. Continuing now in verse 2, And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared before them, talking to him. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And so what takes place, what transpires in verse 2 to begin with, is that Jesus was transfigured. The word transfigured in the Greek is the word metamorpho, which literally is where we get our word metamorphosis. It's compared back to a caterpillar. Right, those fuzzy, fat little caterpillars, so ugly as they climb along. But what happens, we all know, is they spin a cocoon, and then a few days later, uh, uh, magically, miraculously, a butterfly appears. Something that did not look at all like uh, what it eventually ends up like. This is the word that Matthew chooses to use to explain what it was like for Jesus. It didn't look like this from the outside to begin with, but then from the inside, this amazing transformation, this transfiguration. And then describing it, Matthew writes that uh, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. And so we see Jesus shining with this amazing glory. And, and if you want to go to an Old Testament reference, someone else had a face that shined like the sun, a guy named Moses. If you've been going along with us in our daily Bible reading, this past week we were in Exodus uh, 34. And as we went through that, uh, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. He gets the law given to him by God. And then God so graciously actually even passes by Moses and allows him to witness his glory. And so because of this, Moses comes down off of Mount Sinai, and his face was glowing. He was shining, so much so it freaked people out. They're like, what in the world? This dude is shining. Something's going on. And so it was uh, so uh, odd that 
Moses actually puts a veil, we're told, over his face so he didn't freak people out when he talked to them because his face shined. Now, if you just stop there in the Old Testament, we would believe that Moses uh, went along for the rest of his life with his face veiled so that he didn't wig people out from the shining that he was giving forth. But thankfully, the Apostle Paul gives us a little added explanation in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. This is what Paul writes about Moses shining. He writes and says that unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. What Paul's explaining there is Moses actually veiled his face not because of the shining, but because it was actually fading. He was not shining like he was when he first came off of Mount Sinai. And the reason behind that is his glow, the Shekinah glory that he had on his face wasn't his own. It was a reflection of God. And so the further he got away, the further he moved away from God, the older he got, the less he shined because he needed a recharge. Now, going back to our text at hand, what we see is um, Jesus wasn't shining from God. He was shining from within. He was the embodiment of God. And so his glory was actually coming from within him. I, I would make the argument that there was only so long Jesus could hold this glory in. That, that he, was, he had so much light within him that it had to eventually uh, come out. And so the, the warning here for each of us, though, is this. That if we're not reflecting God's glory, what, what eventually happens is whatever's in us comes out. <laughs> So whatever is, is in you and I, if we aren't intentional about asking God to eradicate that on a daily basis, for me on an hourly basis, then, then the yuck is going to get pushed up to the surface. It's going to be the thing that comes out. And so this is a daily prayer. Lord, let your Holy Spirit come down upon me. What are we really asking for? Father, fill us up. Fill us up from the top to the bottom. Let us overflow, because if not, it's going to be our own glory coming out, and we're going to fade like what Moses did. Now, in verses 3 and 4, we read, Behold, that Moses and Elijah appeared before them uh, talking to him. They were having a conversation with Jesus. And this is interesting because Luke's account in Luke chapter 9, he tells us that this conversation actually centered around the death of, and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. It had all to do with the coming events that were going to be happening in Jesus' life. And so they're having a meeting talking about these things, and I find this fascinating because here in verse 4, Peter gets all excited. He says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. But if you remember back to chapter 16, as Jesus shared about his death and his burial and his resurrection, what's Peter say? Oh, not so, Lord. I mean, you, you aren't going to go and be crucified. And, and he has to be rebuked by Jesus. And so just a few days later, now he's in this moment where, where he sees Jesus radiating. And now he says, what? It's good for us to be here. As God reveals himself more and more to us, the things we thought were a certain way in the past all of a sudden become just that. They become old news. Peter begins to realize, look, this is a good thing. I also wanted to point out that uh, Moses and Elijah appearing there to Jesus completely debunks and blows away this theory of uh, reincarnation. You notice Moses and Elijah didn't come back as butterflies or cows or goats. Um, they came back, and this is brilliant by me, they came back as Moses and Elijah. They were the same. 
They, they were the same people. So they came back as themselves. But, but furthermore, uh, note with me that Peter recognizes them. So if you've ever been asked this question, will I uh, know any of my loved ones in heaven? Um, the text is very clear uh, that yes, you will. I mean, how else does Peter know who Moses and Elijah were? Jesus didn't do a meet and greet. I mean, that's not in the text. He didn't go, hey, uh, Mo, this is Pete, Pete, Mo, uh, Mo, Eli, Eli, Mo. Just wanted you guys to all get to know each other before we move on. Peter knew. He knew exactly who these two Old Testament figures were. By the way, uh, Elijah died a thousand years before this took place. So he would have no way of knowing who these were, which it just opens your mind up to realize that when we get our glorified bodies, they are going to be so much improved than these old tabernacles. Right? As we get older and the tent starts to break down, we're like, man, I, I cannot wait for a glorified body. And we think about it oftentimes in the physical, at least for me. I, I think about physical pain, and that's when I get really excited about my temple and getting rid of this tabernacle. But do you understand it's also a mental capacity as well? That he is going to open our minds up when we get to heaven. We are going to be reborn, recreated. We are going to know not only just our loved ones, we are apparently going to know everyone throughout history just by looking at them who they are. That we're believers. So what a beautiful promise and what an amazing upgrade we're going to get from these old tabernacles. Now then in verse 5, and while he was speaking, this is Peter talking, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face, and they were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they had lifted their eyes, they saw no one but only Jesus. And so here Peter has already interjected. Uh, he's one of these guys that cannot stand awkward silence. You ever had that person, like it's weirdly quiet, like somebody's got to talk. It usually happens in prayer. Like have you ever been involved in corporate prayer and it's quiet and you're like, somebody pray, it's getting weird. And so that was at least my take on it until uh, early this morning. And so thinking through this uh, early in the wee hours of the morning, one of the things I love that we get to do here at church is um, the kids downstairs, uh, we don't have to think hard about what they're studying. They're studying Matthew 17, as we are up here studying Matthew 17. And so my wife is uh, studying this, and she says, she's very brilliant. Uh, the only bad decision she's made is one about 20 years ago. Other than that, she's made really good decisions. So she was uh, thinking this through, and she said, you know, isn't it amazing how here's Peter, and he's so excited to be in the presence of Jesus and the two Old Testament figures that every Jewish boy would have been wanted to be around. Right, this is an exciting moment. But then out of that excitement, he just had to do something. That how often do we feel like in our lives, like we're in this awesome spiritual moment, but our flesh says, well, I just got to do something. I mean, I just got to go do something. Now I'm excited. When how often does God want to say, just sit there. Just sit and bask in this. Just be quiet and let me minister to you for a little bit. And that's hard for us, especially being Americans 
in this Western civilization where we are judged by how much we can get done and how much we do, that is very, very, very difficult. But I think oftentimes that's what Jesus is trying to communicate. I want you to just sit and be still. And so for Pete, he couldn't do that. He has to step in. He's got to do something. He's excited. And so what he does is he offers to build a tabernacle. That's just a fancy name for a tent. Hey, how about we put tents up and let's just camp out here. I mean, this is awesome. And so he offers to build one for Moses. Moses is for the Jewish people. This is their physical representation of the law. I mean, the law of Moses. He is, he is at the very top for Jewish people, what they look up to. And then secondly, here's Elijah. He represents all the Old Testament prophets. And so for the Jews, they look at their scripture that it's the law and the prophets. And here are two men that represent this. Um, but the thing is, they don't belong in the same tent as Jesus. You see, this is what God is trying to communicate to Peter in this verse right here. He says in verse 5, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. He doesn't say, uh, hear him, and also obey the law, and also be mindful of the prophets. He doesn't say, hear uh, Jesus, and also listen to Moses, and also listen to Elijah. He is very specific. This is my son. Hear him and him alone. Now then, upon hearing this, both Peter and James and John, they, uh, they fall face first. <laughs> the voice of God rains down from heaven, and they fall flat on their face. And if you have ever had a run-in with God in this way, I want to just uh, come alongside you and say you will fall flat on your face. I've shared with most of you, but I'll, I'll go ahead and share it again, that my call into ministry happened on May the 4th, 2016. And just simply cleaning my camper, trying to get ready for a, a, my daughter's birthday, uh, what I felt was this amazing holiness, this unbelievable Holy Spirit presence in the camper that day. And, and the only reaction I could have was to fall flat on my face. I didn't have the ability to stand. It was just this unbelievable feeling that I am not worthy to be in this place. This is holy ground. It was a Moses kind of moment. I couldn't, I couldn't even think far enough to take my shoes off, but if I could have, I would have taken them off right there because it was so uh, powerful. And, and the best way that I, I've heard, the analogy I've heard with the, an interaction with the Holy Spirit is it's like getting hit by a fruit truck. That if you survive the impact, it's the sweetest thing you'll ever experience. But I mean, for me, it was getting the whoop by the fruit truck and just down. And the only thing I could say was, Whatever you call me to do, whatever you tell me to do, I will do it. I, I didn't know how else to react to that kind of power. Um, but the thing is, he didn't uh, leave me there. And here's the beautiful thing. If you experience that and, you, and you've been in that spot, you do not have to stay there. I think oftentimes for the people that do not believe, that don't receive Jesus, that they spend a lifetime stuck in that spot where they know they're not worthy where they know they're not good enough, where they know they've done so many things in their life that just stacked up to think, God, I can't, I can't possibly be in your presence. And the reality is, they're right. You cannot. You cannot be in the presence of God in your sinful state. You will be consumed. Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire. 
And I believe more and more that I go through my Christian life that hell isn't actually uh, the complete absence of God, but hell is actually the full presence of God and all his glory without the block of Jesus Christ. That what he is is the rock of our salvation, just like he set Moses there in the rock to block him from getting the full effect of his glory. He puts us directly behind the rock of Jesus Christ and it deflects us. And then all of a sudden the fire that would have consumed us is now the fire that brings forth life. I've shared with you before that fire um, in your fireplace is awesome. It warms the house. It warms your hands. Uh, fire on the floor in your living room, that's a whole different deal. That comes with, with lights and all kinds of people with trucks of water, right? It, that's the difference. And so Jesus comes to these disciples and he says, he touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And so for me, as I was face down and thinking about my unworthiness and the fact that I did not deserve to even be uh, in his presence, he simply just said, Feed my sheep. Me? <laughs> Feed my sheep. And I knew in that moment that was Jesus communicating and I could stand again. Precisely what he did for these men. Do not be afraid. Yes, you are not good enough, but here's the thing. I am. Yes, your sin is heavy, and there's all this stuff you've done. Your life's been jacked up, but guess what? I died for that. I gave my life for that thing. You don't have to be bogged down by that anymore. And so just a simple touch by Jesus, and then look with me in verse 8. When they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. No more Moses, no more Elijah, no more worrying about all the things that were taking place. They only saw Jesus right there in front of them. Now then finally in verse 8, <clears throat> they lifted up their eyes. They only saw Jesus thinking through this. Here's Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets, by the way. When he was asked what the greatest commandments were, what did, what did he respond? He said, it's to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And upon these two things hang all the law, there you go, Moses, and all the prophets, there you go, Elijah. And the perfect embodiment of that is in the person of Jesus. And so we see him here at the Mount of Transfiguration, and you know that if in this instant he wanted to just say, you know what, I am done with this whole ordeal. He could have shot up off of that mountain like, uh, like Keanu Reeves in the Matrix. It could have just been a boom and gone. And it would have been uh, perfect, right? 33 years he lived a perfect life. He did everything he was supposed to do. He proved to us, by the way, that it could have been done. And he could have held that against us. You see, you could have done it. I just proved to you that it was possible. And yet, and yet what we find, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, says this, And for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He came down, he experienced what we have experienced so that he could sympathize with us. And then from this moment, he walks off of the mountain there at Hermon that day and proceeds to walk up 
Calvary. Why? Out of love. No other thing nailed him to the cross other than love. On these two things hang all the law and all the prophets, to love God and to love people. For he so loved the, not just you and me, but the whole world, that he gave himself to us. That he allowed himself, he humbled himself to death on a cross. And so we see Jesus walking down off of Mount Hermon up onto Calvary strictly because of love. He didn't have to, he chose to. He got to do this. Verse 9 as we close. And now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them to tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come, and that they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. And likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. And so these men, knowing their scriptures, they've realized they've seen the transfiguration of Jesus. They know precisely who he is, but then they've got a question. Why then do the scriptures say that Elijah was going to come first? Uh, They went to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. I put it on the screen. Malachi writes, Behold, I am sending to you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so they're thinking, Lord, you're here. Why isn't Elijah here? And so Jesus says to them, Look, it's true what Scripture says. Elijah is going to come. If you go to the revelation that John received there on the island of Patmos, what we see in Revelation Chapter 11, verse 3, is that two witnesses are actually sent ahead of the Messiah coming back for his second coming. Those two witnesses, I believe, are Elijah the prophet and Moses, which means what we just went through in the text in Matthew 17 was essentially a meeting to talk about all these things which were to come. It was a meeting before the meeting. If any of you have to go to meetings, sometimes we have to go to meetings before the meeting and then turn around and have a meeting about the meeting. And so this is precisely what was taking place. It was a pre-meeting meeting meeting, uh, for Elijah and Moses. And so in Revelation chapter 11, we see the, the two witnesses are there before the great and terrible day of the Lord. This is always used to describe that final day of judgment when Jesus will come down and set his feet on the Mount of Olives. But he doesn't leave him there. He says, for any of you that can get your mind wrapped around this in verse 12, I say to you that Elijah has come already. You see, just like they didn't understand the two uh, comings of the Messiah, they did not understand the multiple arrivals of Elijah. And this being the person of John the Baptist, not the physical manifestation, but in the spirit of Elijah is what John the Baptist would come in. And so, As we wrap up today, I want to just share a couple things with you that look like this. Um, First of all, the first point to make is that God's word is always going to be fulfilled. 
that there are all kinds of things in Scripture and in text, and I was talking to a couple guys about this this week, that, that we can dispute all these different things in the text, and we can have doctrinal discussions, and we can get uh, overly dogmatic about this idea or that idea, and your eschatology can be different than my eschatology, but the reality is Scripture is always going to be fulfilled. That's something that cannot be argued, because throughout history we've seen it take place. As God said, this happened. The issue for these guys is the issue that we so often face. It doesn't always look like I thought it was going to look. It didn't look the way they had it already figured out ahead of time. <clears throat> and so often in our lives, God is fulfilling his word in our life. He gives us a promise. He says he's going to do a thing, but then it doesn't look the way we thought it was going to look. And so what happens is we don't believe it. We don't, we don't think it's, it's fulfilled in the right way or the right manner, but here's the deal, that his word is going to be fulfilled and it's always going to accomplish his purpose. So if God's ever fulfilled something in your life and you've been able to go back and look at it, you can look back and go, man, I didn't see that coming, but now I see what he was up to. He was accomplishing his will in my life and I didn't even realize it. And so Jesus is sharing with these guys, look, open your eyes, open your spiritual eyes, look around to what's really going on. Isaiah chapter 55, I'm actually going to start in verse 10. This is highlighter worthy if you're a person that doesn't freak out about highlighting in your Bible. Verse 10, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but, the wa but water the earth, and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it will accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent. This is inarguable, that his word is always going to prosper. It will always accomplish what it is he set forth. The final point today is to simply not lose sight of who this is all about. For Peter and James and John, they got all excited about Moses. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty awesome. They got to see Moses right there. They got all excited about Elijah. It's so excited, they were actually asking about Elijah as they're headed down off the mountain. Hey, hey Jesus, what about Elijah? Forgetting the fact that they were walking down the mountain with Jesus. It was always all about him. And I wonder how often we get sidetracked in church with the trappings. I mean, I am sitting here in a garden scene, right? I'm in the Garden of Eden here. Here I am. We get so worked up about things like garden scenes and chairs. I ordered new chairs for the church to have a little more room. I ordered the wrong doggone color. I was all worked up about ordering dark gray chairs instead of gray chairs. And God had to remind me, it's all about Jesus. It's not about dark gray chairs and gray chairs. Don't worry, we'll have them out next week so you can laugh at me. It's all about me being humbled by not being able to read. But the thing is, it's, it's not, it was never intended to be about that. It's always supposed to have been and all pointed back to Jesus, which is why in John chapter 5, verse 39, is, is Jesus is addressing the scribes and the Pharisees, whose job, by the way, was to pour over Scripture, to know Scripture better than anybody. This was their job. 
Jesus said this to them, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you'll have eternal life. But these are they that testify of me. You search and you search. And by the way, I want to encourage you to search the scriptures. Don't get me wrong there. Read the word of God. Study it. But if it becomes all about the little idiosyncrasies and the minutiae, and, and, and scholars have argued about this text, by the way, for years. Was Jesus on Mount Tabor? Was he on Mount Hermon? What mount was he on? Who gives a rip what mount he was on? Jesus was transfigured. That's the point of the story. And so often we get like that. We get so sidetracked with the little things in church, and we don't focus our eyes on the fact is that it's all about him. That in him is the place that we have hope. In him is the opportunity we have for salvation. In him is the only chance we have to see the miraculous take place. And there is, by the way, nothing more miraculous than seeing someone come to know Jesus as their Savior. The most beautiful thing you could ever be a part of. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you. And we pray intently that we would have our eyes and our minds and our hearts set solely upon you. Father, forgive us for all the times where we get so sidetracked with all the trappings and the little things and we forget to just focus upon you. Father, this time of worship to come up, Lord Jesus, may this be all about you. May we get our eyes set upon you. Thank you for saving us from a place of being knowing for a fact that we are on worthy to be in your presence but instead coming alongside us and scooping us up like a child a reminder to not be afraid Father we praise you in Jesus name Amen Would you please stand for our closing song You are here moving in the midst worship you I worship you you are here working in this place I worship you I worship you you are way maker miracle work promise keeper Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. You are here, touching every heart. I worship you, I worship you. You are here, healing every heart. I worship you, I worship you, you are waiting, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are, you are waiting, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. Is my God, that is who you are.
are here turning lives around I worship you I worship you you are here mending every heart I worship you I worship you you are way Church says, 